plans for the country's first long-term shelter for homeless alcoholics, a so-called wet house where residents can stay and drink openly, were shelved just over a week ago. The decision came amid pressure from local residents on the scheme's funders, and comes as a blow to those who see the concept as a practical and cost-saving step for the whole community. In other countries, wet houses are well established, and in this programme, social issues reporter Teresa Cowie visits a scheme in London to see how it works, and asks whether "not in my backyard" pressure here means New Zealand has lost its chance to improve the help offered to long-term alcoholics. They have tendencies to drink, urinate, and vomit in public. And they have major medical problems, diseases such as TB. We've been told quite openly that this is a place where they will go to drink themselves to death. If the people were here to dry out, I think that would make a big difference. But they're they're here and they're continuing to drink. This is an experiment that's no one knows which way it's going to go. And if they haven't got any alcohol or want money for it, it might take them long to find out that this. Somebody living here. The country's first wet house was to be set up here, on the hillside of this quiet Wellington cul-de-sac, in the seaside suburb of Island Bay. But pressure from local residents has put pay to that. Overseas, wet houses have been an essential part of the system for helping homeless alcoholics for the past 20 years. Experts say there are cost savings to the health and judicial systems to be had. And the worries of local residents are usually unfounded. However, it now appears the 30 people, earmarked as hopefuls for the six places in the house, will continue to be left out in the cold. Thank you. Please don't forget to tag off. The old reading at the library, or just go visiting certain people, or just uh, yesterday uh, we bought uh, one of those day tripper. Ticket for the bus, so you can just spend all day driving around on the bus from, I think it's nine o'clock in the morning till nine at night. So just spend all day. Oh, we've been to that. Oh, yeah, oh, here comes one. We're away. We'll go on that one. Kerry Peterson was one of those being considered for a place in the wet house. He used to work in the forestry industry, but a car accident in the mid 1990s left him with a head injury that changed his life forever. The 48-year-old developed an addiction to drink, and he's been rough sleeping and in and out of shelters for four years. He's been staying at the Wellington Night Shelter since the middle of this year. Their guests have to be in the door by nine o'clock at night and out again at half past seven the next morning. None of the residents are allowed to drink while they're there, and while he likes staying at the shelter, he wants a home. I get on well with everyone here, and you know, I've actually got my little niche in here now. You know, if I go missing, everyone gets all worried about me. They say they're getting bloody lost up town or、um, getting locked up for doing doing silly things when I shouldn't be doing. But、um, after a, a couple of drinks, or yeah, <laughs> away I go again. At the moment, the only option available for Wellington homeless who aren't couch surfing or rough sleeping is the night shelter where Kerry Peterson stays. It's full to overflowing, and in June this year, it had to create a makeshift dormitory from a storeroom to accommodate its highest number of guests since opening 40 years ago. Stephanie McIntyre is the director of the Downtown Community Ministry, which provides help for Wellington's homeless. 
She's travelled to 11 wet houses around the world to research what kind of services New Zealand needs to lift the most vulnerable tier of homeless people out of their cycle of misery. In her study, she cites an article by the New Yorker magazine's Malcolm Gladwell about an alcoholic vagrant known as Million Dollar Murray. He focused on an individual in Reno who cost the state over a million dollars and tragically still remained homeless. And, and a police officer became very interested in Murray and somehow they managed to get the figures on what Murray had cost in terms of health care, um, detox, prison, court fines and all these sorts of things. And I mean, this is happening in our communities as well. And emergency services in Wellington can testify keeping people like Kerry and Murray on the streets is draining their resources. The Wellington City Area Commander for the Police, Peter Cowan, supports having a wet house in the capital. He says processing the kinds of people who would live in it for minor offences like disorderly behaviour and breaking the city's liquor ban can take one of his officers off the street for up to five hours. I can think of one particular uh, person who's clocked up in excess of 200 criminal offences in the last six or seven years. And uh, he's, he's just now seen as this um, person who just goes in and out of the judicial system with no one being able to address his needs. And so this is the first time that I potentially see a resource available that can perhaps assist him. I'm not sure it's going to, but it's something that we can refer him to. Peter Cowan says each offence costs the police about $600, but the price tag for court visits, prison and probation services is much more. Back in Reno, Nevada, Million Dollar Murray became such a fixture in the revolving door between the police station and the hospital emergency department, a nurse and an officer who'd become accustomed to exchanging them between their services eventually fell in love and married. While no such romances have been recorded in Wellington, an emergency specialist at the city's hospital, Dr Paul Quigley, says the frequent exchanges between police and staff in his waiting room rings true. And it's a certain group of homeless alcoholics he keeps seeing there time and time again. These eight patients combined had 120 visits to the department over a year's period. One of them's particularly heavy. He had 40 of those presentations alone himself, and then the others are, are divided out. But that's both a cost in terms of delivery of healthcare services, but also that's preventing another patient coming in. Their literal physical presence in the department means someone else has to wait in the waiting room. Dr Quigley says it's a myth they come to hospital simply to get a bed for the night. They're out there in all weather, and it only takes a small cut to the skin or, say, their feet to break down, uh, and they get uh, leg infections and cellulitis and they end up presenting to the hospital. Uh, the problem is is that they only can get a sort of a starting part of the treatment because when you discharge in the department, where do they go? Back to under the bridge, back to the bus stop. So they're probably not going to continue their antibiotics or they're not going to continue their treatment. They'll continue back to their drinking and therefore they just revolve back because the, the problem doesn't go away or they don't get better. Dr Quigley says having nowhere to go once they're discharged can turn a five-minute consultation into a 24-hour hospital stay. He wants a wet house in Wellington and says even though drinking is allowed, it would still vastly improve residents' health. Wet houses, or hostels, have been running in the United Kingdom, Canada, America and Ireland for decades. 
I visited the St Mungo's Wet Hostel in London to find out how they work there. My name's Colin Kirk. I've been on the street for 23 years. I have had problems with drinking problems, very heavy. I moved into St Mungo's about 18 months ago to get my life sorted out. Ryan Elaine manages the Harrow Road Hostel, where Colin Kirk lives with 41 other long-term alcoholics. Unlike the shelters seen in most New Zealand cities, residents can live there for up to two years and drink in designated areas. It's a first-stage hostel, so it is getting people off of the streets from being rough sleepers. Uh, some of our guys will come in through a rolling shelter, which is just a quick three-week stay until they come to us. So that's just essentially getting their paperwork moving forward, whether that's their benefits, getting their identification. They come to us to stabilize. So that could be getting linked into services, whether that's mental health services or uh, working with our substance use team to deal with their drinking issues, if they have any history of drug use. A lot of it could be looking at what their housing options are, but it is getting them to a point where they can actually live independently. So we forget a lot about how we can deal with things that come in the post, yet they'll forget about paying their bills, and then that puts them at risk of being evicted. Colin Kirk, who's 66, took to a life on the streets after leaving the army. I lost my wife. Things just went a bit haywire. I had money in my pocket, I thought, right, I'll see a few of them on the street sitting down with the sleeping bag begging, getting easy money. I thought, right, I've just done 21 here, I'm going to have some of that. I thought it was fun, sitting out here drinking, sleeping anywhere you like, but then in the end, it caught up on me. Since entering the wet hostel, he's gone from sleeping rough and moving between night shelter dormitories to having his own room and getting a bank account. Now we're in my room. Oh, it's quite big. It's a lot bigger than I expected. It's bigger, it's bigger. See, some of the rooms are a lot smaller. This one is one of the biggest ones, and all this I've built up myself, the whole lot. Are you allowed to drink in your room? Yeah, allowed to drink in a room so I can do what you do what what, what, what want to do in that room. We're allowed to. I don't, we don't make excessive noise to anybody or disturb anybody or cause any trouble or anybody. I've got my TV, got my CD, video, all my CDs there. I've got all my sort of stuff, all my stuff in there, clothing and bits and pieces. I've always, that's all my own toilet stuff over there. And you know, all these you know, pictures I bought myself and all that's mine. And how does this compare with previous shelters? Well, this one is excellent. Because the one I was previously at the other shelter wasn't worth even being in. You had just had a, had a mattress on the floor and that was it. You didn't get no food or anything like that. And what about help with your drinking, no, um, no, help no, into a house? There's no facilities for helping for drinking or. Um, or mental health problems, or any other problems, or anger man, which I'm trying to go on to through. There was none of that sorted out. It was all sort of just, well, you're there and that's it. The wet hostel's social workers have him on a programme to try to reduce his drinking. A rough guess. I'll say three bottles of white ice, about two bottles of vodka, and a large bottle of scotch. You've been getting some help over the past 18 months mm. with your drinking, and here you've got... Down to that. So what have we got here? We've got... So it's, a, it's medium dry cider, it's only four point something. So you'd go through t- these two of these plastic bottles here, yeah. two two litres. So that's done quite a lot from I'll, what you were before. Well, so Ben was saying I'll cut my alcohol down by half and half again. And he said I'm doing well with it. Staff at the London Wet Hostel are also trying to help Colin Kirk manage his temper. 
During my visit, he lashed out twice at another resident and the police had to be called. Back in New Zealand, it was that kind of unpredictable violence that had the residents of Island Bay worried. But in the well-heeled suburb where the average house price is $465,000, its residents, made up of largely professionals, young families and the elderly, put up a strong and sustained lobby against the house. They don't want drunks living near the local Decile 10 primary school or hanging around in its seaside park. Verona Johnston's tranquil back garden is right beside the housing New Zealand property that was set aside for the wet house. It's already been used as a community house for mental health patients and the intellectually disabled. However, the 78-year-old, who lives by herself, says the thought of living next door to unpredictable drunks left her terrified. So it's a pretty typical Wellington back garden with this slight clay cliff here that we're going to have to climb up. It's only about 10 steps away from your clothesline, isn't it? Mm-hmm. They are going to put up a, a six-foot-high fence, approximately. The noise which I've had from the previous occupants just comes over as I'm slightly below where the house is. If I come out my back door into my patio and want to sit in the sun, everything that is said or anything that goes on next door is just right there with me. Robin McLean lives around the corner from what was to be the wet house site with her husband and two children aged seven and one. She shared her neighbour's fears and threatened to ban her daughter from walking to school if vagrants moved into the area. Council documents state, and I quote, while no longer homeless, this group of vulnerable people will continue to have a high-risk lifestyle and complex needs. Some are a threat to both themselves and other members of the community. Why would we want something in our community that poses a threat to our members? The Wellington City Area Commander for the Police, Peter Cowan, says people with a history of serious crime would never have been allowed to live at the house. There is no way, and I've told the Wet House Trust, there is no way that we can give them a 100% guarantee that the protocols we help to assist develop will be 100% foolproof. There's always an element of risk associated with people who have addictions, especially alcohol, coming together. There's there's always an element of risk. There's no way that we can say with 100% surety and guarantee the community that there won't be any issues or trouble. That's just... That just uh, saying that would uh, would not be true. When Colin Kirk became violent at his wet house in London, he knew there'd be consequences. I know what's going to happen. I'll finish this interview with you. I'll have to pull you out the door, but but I'm not really worried now. Does that mean you'll have to go for a walk? Do you mean? No, it means I'll be evicted. That's what it means. Why will you be evicted? Because there's not supposed to be any any um, violence in this place whatsoever. Are you on some kind of warnings or something to do with eviction? Well, on, on violence like that, I think that management would say that's it. But I don't actually know yet. Well, how is that sort of structured then? How many chances does someone get? Well, normally, you normally get three chances. Normally. 
but I don't know on that specific with the violence. I don't know. Ruth Harrison is the chairperson of Te Whare Oki Oki, the trust that's been trying to get the project up and running. She says a wet house would work with the police to set protocols for dealing with violence. So the community has to have rules, and one of those rules that we've talked about is very strongly as being a good neighbour. So they have to be respectful of um, the fact that they're in a residential area and there are other people around, so they need to be behaving in ways that you would expect to see in the neighbourhood. If those rules aren't followed, um, then there has to be a process of engagement with the person. But the ultimate sanction is that people would be expelled from the house. For somebody who's desperate to have a home and really wanting to have a home, that's a pretty dire sanction for them. But that brings no comfort for Island Bay mother Robin McLean, who says the wet house was already planned for the suburb before locals found out. She says it's left them questioning how well the rest of the project might have been run. To date there's still been no proactive consultation from anyone behind this project. It's been up to the Island Bay residents to do their own research and find out as much as we can. We had a meeting a couple of months ago where we invited members of the the trust that has since been set up to run this wet house, but at no stage have they ever come to us with a plan or or details of this house. That's um, something we find very frustrating and for us It also is an indicator that they're not the right people to man this project if they can't even get the information out there to inform the locals about what's going on. The Trust's Ruth Harrison says not having the chance to tell residents of its plans firsthand turned the relationship south from the start. The way that community engagement started was that Capital Times ran an article saying that people were coming to Island Bay and people immediately reacted to that, so we were asked to come to a meeting. So it wasn't something that we had a chance to come together as a trust and say, OK, we need to engage with the community. So why didn't they know beforehand, before they read it in the paper? The Red House itself has been consulted on in terms of the Wellington City Council plan for a number of years in their long-term community plan and in their annual plans. But, of course, that was never location-specific. And at the time that it was in the newspaper saying it was Island Bay, we hadn't made any decision on location either, so it was really way back right at the beginning. Just over a week ago, the pressure got too much, however, and the Trust pulled out of its current plans. It says the last straw was the requirements imposed by one of its financial backers, Capital and Coast District Health Board. Requirements, it says, move the goalposts. A member of Te Whare Oki Oki Trust, Rawiri Evans, believes the decision by the DHB to demand a five-year funding plan right now, rather than after the project had been running for a year, as had been originally agreed, is unreasonable. The original funding was for one year to actually pilot the project and evaluate its effectiveness so that we could actually secure more and ongoing funding from there. However, for us to come up within a very short space of time to be able to produce that, we cannot do that. So rather than uh, try and do a rush job and perhaps you know, not cover the bases that we need to cover and make some rash decisions, uh, we're wanting to take time to restock, regather and actually put a proposal package together that's going to be effective for the, for the House long term. Rawiri Evans says it's a pilot project and its success can only sensibly be assessed after its first year of operation and most other similar organisations operate on a one-year funding agreement. 
The District Health Board did not provide anyone to be interviewed by Insight. In a statement, it says it stands by its decision because, as a publicly funded organisation, it has to invest its funds wisely and seek assurances that solid business plans exist for any potential project. The Wellington City Council also initially put up $250,000 for the pilot, but that funding was conditional on whether the DHB paid up. The Trust Rawiri Evans doesn't think the vociferous lobby by Island Bay residents affected the DHB's decision. He says the Trust is determined to go ahead with the project at some point, and whether it will be at the Island Bay House is still up in the air. The reality is we're more determined than ever. We've had communication with a number of groups in Island Bay who were, who were really, really supportive um, of the house and its uh, philosophy, really, um, of looking after homeless alcoholics. I guess one of the biggest things is about education for the community, but in saying that everybody has the right to dignity and everybody has the right to good health care, whether they're an alcoholic or uh, and homeless or whether they're um, Joe Bloggs living just next door. The issue of homeless people is going to grow. It's not getting smaller. The Trust says it will now look to use bequests and other funding sources to finance the project. Did the location of the house in a well-heeled suburb determine the fate of the concept? Stephanie McIntyre's international research on wet houses suggests they're better placed in suburban areas, so as residents become well, they can ease their way back into community life. People sometimes want to move away from the city. The city hasn't always been a place that's had a positive impact on their lives. Um, It's a place where they find they get into trouble. This is a group of people who actively want to get into a new situation. They also want a home, as other people have a home. They've got quite lovely aspirations and dreams about gardening and doing uh, suburban things like mowing the lawn and those kinds of things. They want a home, and, and homes, although we've got more city dwellers these days, for most of us as New Zealanders, homes are more typically in the suburbs. And I think it's quite offensive, really, to suggest that This is a group of people who wouldn't have similar aspirations. Wellington Night Shelter resident Kerry Peterson. One thing I I miss, I'm a good cook and I like, you know, preparing food and cooking and all the rest of it, but you can't do anything like that here. But we've got our own select group of looker-afters there that look after the place. I'm generally the cleaner. (laughs) I'm the one that's sweeping all the butts up and everything out there in our smoking shed, making it look presentable. Keeps the managers happy. So. Ryan Elaine, who manages the St Mungo's Wet Hostel in London, says it has houses in all parts of the city, including suburban areas. He says wet hostels should be placed wherever there's a suitable property available. A lot of it is linking individuals back into the community, so it's not enough to just take people off the streets and ostracise them and put them in these uh, false type of homeless ghettos where you know, homeless people go to this part of the town. That's, that's not good enough. You want them to be part of the community to where they potentially will end up moving out of. So if they come into the hostel, they'll be moving into their own flat, they'll be moving into a different type of accommodation, and you want them to still go to church or belong to youth activity groups, if that's the type of thing they do, be close. They need to be part of the community and not pulled away from that. For now, Kerry Peterson will try to get himself out of the Wellington Night Shelter and into a rehabilitation centre in Christchurch. Iona Panett is the Wellington City Councillor responsible for homelessness. 
She says the city prides itself on being an innovative centre and she wants the country's first wet house to go ahead in the capital. I can see why some people may think it looks like a licence to drink, but that's not the case. It is a place where it is acknowledged that you are dealing with a client group who are very, very sick. It's not a life choice, it is an illness. All the services in the city require abstinence at the moment, and so that's not feasible for them to give up drinking at the moment. The place is to allow drinking, but in a very controlled manner. It is not a place where people will be able to socialise and drink as much as they like. There will be rules and boundaries set around that. The idea then is to make sure that once people are housed and safe, because at the moment, of course, anyone living on the street is not in a safe position, they will get access to services and help to deal with some of the deeper problems because you know, alcoholism is only part of it. Kerry Peterson says if a wet house is established in the city, he'll be putting his hand up for a place in it. Yeah, I'm not running this place down by saying that, but yeah, it's just, as you say, if we could do a bit more domesticated things, um, i just make it feel more like a home rather than just a shelter. But waiting and seeing. That programme was written and presented by Teresa Cowie. Technical production was by William Saunders and it was produced by Sue Ingram.